I'm kind of preaching to the choir here because you're the ones who rolled out of bed this morning and made your way to church, right? So it's, been, it's important enough for you to be here. But you won't always have that mentality that says this is important enough. And in fact, some of you might even be questioning, even this morning, why do I even do this? Maybe some of these reasons have gone through your head today. You know what's not on this list? I like to sleep in on Sundays. You know, people really don't mind waking up. It's the other stuff that keeps people away from a church body. Today, James gives us, as he always does, very practical application for our lives. And in today's passage, James covers three reasons why the church has to be a priority for us. Why we have to make it a priority. Why we have to keep doing this. Why we have to keep coming together and worshiping together. He gives us three things that tell us, they answer the question, if I abandon church, what am I abandoning? If I abandon church, what am I abandoning? Now this is not to say that there's never a reason to leave a church. There oftentimes is. But most of us have resonated with these things. Can you believe in Jesus and not be a part of a church? Can you believe in Jesus and not go to church? Yeah, of course. Can you be a Christian and not believe in church and not go to church? Yeah. Yeah. But what about all of these things that Jesus tells us to do? So if you're following Jesus, you want to do the things that Jesus tells you to do. And Jesus tells us all of these things. He says, do not forsake the gathering together. He says to practice baptism, the Lord's Supper, and church discipline. He says to sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, not just by yourself, to one another. He says to sit under the preaching of God's word. And the scripture tells us to submit to the elders of a church and make their leadership of you a joy. And you might say, well, I do all of those things with a group of friends that I'm very close with. We, we do all of these things. And I, and I would say, congratulations, you're a church planter. Maybe invite a few other people to that and see where it goes. Friends, there are brothers and sisters in the world today who risk their lives to be with other brothers and sisters, who literally will walk miles under the fear of physical persecution and death, to gather. They will sit for hours to hear the word taught. And yet we take it so for granted that making our way to a church building in our cars and sitting in the air conditioning while someone plays with most of our children is too inconvenient for us to make it a priority. We're like George Costanza in Seinfeld. I don't know if you, you, you know, this is a certain generation. You know, 35 and over, yeah, glad you're here. Um, George Costanza in Seinfeld, um, he somehow, he's not an attractive man. He's played by Jason Alexander. But somehow he always has a very attractive wife, or very attractive girlfriend. And, uh, but he'll break up with them for anything, any, anything. In one episode, he breaks up with this woman because her second toe is longer than her big toe. 
and he just can't tolerate that. Sandal season came in, I'm done. You know, he, he can't deal with that. And that's how we are with church too often, too often, where we're willing to break up with her for anything. Friends, we have so forgotten the value of church that we see attendance and membership as an optional addition to Christianity and not an essential aspect of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And James is here for us today. He helps give us some direction of what the church should be. And that's part of the problem is churches aren't what they should be. We're a new church in the city. And so we need to be living out what we desire for the church to be. When you look at the scriptures, Jesus cares about the church tremendously. He has a huge heart for the church. He loves the church. We might not care much about the church, but Jesus, he loves the church. Not only does he say he loves the church, but he lays down his life. The core message of Christianity is that Jesus lays down his life, not for Christians individually, but for his bride, which is the church. And we participate in that love of Christ as we join his bride, as we're part of his body. If you come against the bride of Christ, you better believe he'll come against you. And I know that's hard. It's not to say you can't criticize the church. There's lots of churches that deserve criticism. We deserve criticism in many different ways. It's not to say you can't leave a church that's unhealthy or not representing the bride of Christ accurately. But it's to say you can't give up on the thing that Christ died for. When Jesus appears to the Apostle Paul, uh, he's blinded, and, he, and Jesus says, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus, he was persecuting the church. Jesus identified so much with the church that as Saul persecuted the church, Jesus said, you're persecuting me. That's how much Jesus identified with the church. If you love Jesus, you love the church. And if you abandon the church, I hope you don't abandon Jesus. But they tend to go hand in hand. My goal today is to give you a reason to keep getting out of bed, to see the unique place that the church fills in the life of the Christian. to motivate you to make not only church a, a worship service, but a family, to, to live out what it means to be the church. And so this is where, where James ends his letter. He basically tells us how we are to be the church together. So I want to give you three things that the church should be in an ideal world. Three things that the church should be in an ideal world. Not that the church is, but that the church should be. And there's a reason why James is including it in here. It's because he's having to tell churches, like, hey, you should do this. All right? It's because they were already failing. And so we're going to fail on these things, but th these are the ideals that we hold up. The first thing, uh, the three things that we're going to be covering are a church should be an authentic community, a church should be a praying community, and a church should be a pursuing community. An authentic, a praying, and a pursuing community. Let's, let's dive in there. An authentic community. 
That's what he says. The church should be the most authentic community imaginable. Why should the church be the most authentic community imaginable? It's because it should be the safest community imaginable. Because when you're in a body of Christ, when you're in a group of people who call Jesus their Savior, those people know that God is pleased with them, not because of what they have done, but because of what Christ has done. And so there is no need to prove yourself there, because Christ has already proven you righteous before God. And in fact, you can be in that group and say, I am the worst sinner in the world, and they would say, right there with you. It should be the most authentic community imaginable, but church always fails to be the most authentic church, uh, the authentic community imaginable. People come to church and they put on their church face and we think we have to keep up with the Joneses and we have to look happy and look all put together. We've lost that authenticity. And it might not seem like this is what James is talking about in verse 12, but this is exactly what James is talking about in verse 12. You have to do a little digging here uh, into the, the ancient culture of the time. Verse 12, it says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, James is talking about swearing. And when we talk about swearing, he might, we, we oftentimes think in our head, uh, he must be talking about saying bad words. And there, look, there is reason to think that Christians should not have the same word that's uh, uttering filthy language and praises to God. Those things probably should not be coming out of the same mouth. And so there's good reason to believe that, but that's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is not talking about bad words. This passage is talking about swearing oaths. And he's riffing off of something that Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount, which he does often. And this that Jesus is talking about, with let your yes be yes and your no be no, is riffing off of the third commandment, which is the most misunderstood commandment of the ten. It's pretty clear what he means by do not murder, although they did find ways around that. It's not clear what he means by do not take the Lord's name in vain. The goal of the third commandment wasn't just so that we will stop saying for Christ's sake, Okay? It wasn't just so you would stop using Jesus' name as a curse word, but, which is the way I always learned the third commandment, do not take the Lord's name in vain. But the, word, the commandment, do not take the Lord's name in vain, it's intended to help create a flourishing society where you can trust one another. And so what would happen in an ancient society? Let me give you an illustration. In an ancient society, if you think that your neighbor stole your ox. Okay, I'm trying to think of an ancient society illustration here. You think that your neighbor stole your ox, and you go and you approach your neighbor and you say, hey, you stole my ox. And he says, I swear to God, I did not steal your ox. Well, there's nothing higher that you can evoke to in this ancient society where, where it's a theocracy. He's saying, I swear with all that is in me, I swear to God that I did not take your ox. He's lying, but he's using the, na- the name of the Lord in vain. And so they got a commandment saying, do not use the, the name of the Lord in vain, meaning don't, don't say that you swear to God and, and don't believe it. And so what people started doing is they would say, they'd get around it a little bit. They would get creative. They would say, 
I swear to heaven, I didn't take your ox. And you might say, "Ah, I guess technically you're not breaking the commandment. I guess technically you're not using the Lord's name in vain, but that just doesn't feel right. It feels like you're getting around this one. And so Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount, and he, as he does with everything, he turns everything upside down. And he says, you missed the heart of the commandment. Because the heart of the commandment is that you are an honest people. And just because you're not using the Lord's name and you're lying doesn't make you any better. And he says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. There's no reason to evoke heaven or earth or the Lord's name or any of that. We don't have to do all of that. We can just be people of our word. And so that gets to the essence of what it means to be an authentic community. We're an authentic community who are people of our word. And I love the way that Dallas Willard puts this. It changed the way that I understood all of this yes be yes and no be no stuff. Listen to this. Dallas Willard says this. He says, the essence of swearing that Jesus or James targets here is about invoking something or someone else, especially God, to make your words seem more significant and weighty. The aim is to impress others with your seriousness or piety so that you get what you want. It's a device of manipulation designed to override the judgment or input of others in order to possess them for our purposes. It's manipulation, or as we say in our culture, spin. And Jesus says it's evil. Instead of loving and honoring others with truthfulness, the intent is to get one's way by verbal manipulation of the thoughts and the choices of others. By letting our yes be yes and our no be no, we become the most authentic community because we become less concerned about what others think. We become less controlled by what others think. We become less obsessed about spinning our every word and our every action, our every deed, so that others will like us more. Because we have safety and security in the fact that we are completely known all the way down to our heart, yet completely loved because of what Christ has done. It changes the way that we interact with one another, and it gives us the ability to be the authentic community. Churches often are not that, but that is what we desire to be, church. Let's be authentic. The second thing that the church should be, that oftentimes isn't, is a praying community. We are a group of people who get together weekly to sing praises to a God that we believe is active and moving, who is in control of everything, who is omnipotent, who is omniscient, who owns everything, who is powerful beyond any of our imaginations, yet we spend so little time We believe that we have full access to him, that we can talk to him anytime. But we take it for granted. And that's what James is saying, is that prayer matters. He says this, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. They didn't have phones back then. This is like, hey, send your friend. Bring the elders of the church to that sick person. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
I'll say this. It might be because we have a very young church, but I feel like I get off easy on the praying for sick people thing. I, someone will be gone for a couple weeks. They'll come back. I assume you're traveling. I'm always going to try to assume the best. And they're oh, I was so sick. I'm like, why didn't you tell me? It's literally my job. It's written in the Bible. Like, it's in my job description to come and pray for you. I want to pray for you. Make my job harder. That's what I'm asking you to do. Make, make, it, make, it, make it harder. And if you don't have a church, if you don't have that community, you don't have elders to come and pray for you when you're sick. And you're potentially missing healing. Because this scripture says that it's effective and helpful when you're sick to have people praying for you. We need a church. Now, he says something a little weird here. He says, verse 14, is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders and let them pray over him. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord Jesus, in the name of the Lord. If you grew up in a more charismatic background, you might be like, what's weird about that? That sounds good. Where are my charismatics at, you know? <laughs> okay, there's a few. It's the worship team. Um, but for the rest of us, we see oil, and we're like, oil? You going to make my hair greasy? What are we doing here? I'm not 100% sure, okay? Now, it could be that the oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, and it's just a way to set someone aside and say, like, we really are praying for you. On the other hand, um, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, a a man is beaten, he's very wounded, and a Samaritan helps him and takes him to a hotel. um, But two things that he does to help him is he gives him wine and oil. And so in this ancient culture, it could be, I'm I'm not an expert on ancient medical history, but it could be that oil was seen as medicinal. It was something that could help soothe and help. And so it could very well be here that James is telling you, get the best medical care possible and ask the elders to pray for you. Works for me. If, if that's what he's saying, it works for me. At the same time, I've got oil. I'm ready to, put, I'm ready to, 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 to help you, okay? Um, during communion and after the worship gathering today, if you've been sick, if you would like to prayer, um, Mark, one of our elders, is going to be available during communion, and I'll be available afterward as well. Um, and we'll just meet with you over here. If you'd like prayer, we'll just use a little bit, unless you want a lot. You know, you can request uh, your volume, I suppose. Um, <laughs> we, we just have a little bit. I brought it in a Tupperware. It's just olive oil. Um, I'll, I'll just, you know, we didn't pay anybody for, like, the, the, the special anointing oil online or anything. I'm pretty sure we can. You have some? All right. Um, <laughs> so we can we can just put a little a little dab and we can pray and it would be our delight to pray for you today. In the scripture, prayer is not seen as a alternative to medicinal practices, but as a complementary to medicinal practices. Um, I'm not sure. Verse 15. I'm not sure that there is a verse in the entire Bible that over-promises and and under-delivers more than verse 15. Everybody's looking. Um, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. 
that verse sure does sound like if you just mean it enough, God will heal you no matter what. It sure does sound like if you're filled with faith and praying hard enough, you will, you will be healed. There's a few problems with that. Well, there's one good thing about that. And one thing that we need to learn from this is that we pray with the expectation that prayer works and that God does things. We don't want to always have to caveat our prayers as if we're making excuses for God not to move. Because God does do things. But at the same time, there's a lot of examples and reasons to think that prayer is not a guarantee like that. One, prayer would be a weapon if it was a guarantee like that. If someone could say, if only you have enough faith, God will answer any prayer that you have. Well, what if that prayer is to my detriment? What if you're wanting something that belongs to me or that God has intended for me? You don't know everything that God knows, and so sometimes your own prayers would be to your detriment. Additionally, uh, that's, a, that's a, also a difficult statement because if you said, if you just had enough faith, God will always answer your prayers. As far as I know, there aren't many people who live much beyond 100. But we also know that the older you get, usually the more faith that you end up having. Older saints are filled with faith. So why is it that the most faithful are oftentimes the ones who die? Everyone dies. Very few exceptions. About to get into the Old Testament. Got to do that. Um, and so we, we know it's not guaranteed in that kind of way. Also, you look, at, you look at Paul. Paul says he pleaded three times that the, that the thorn in his flesh would be removed. And God said, no, my power is made perfect in your weakness. His prayer was answered, just not the way he wanted it to be. Sometimes we need to look for how God is going to answer our prayers. It's not the way that we want. And then you look at um, Jesus. Jesus himself had an unanswered prayer. When he said, Lord, if it's possible, may this cup pass from me. You can't ask for more faith than Jesus. And yet even Jesus had a prayer answered in the negative. And so when we pray, we come, we expect God to move. We know that prayer is effective, that he uses our prayers. But we also say, thy will be done in heaven as it is on on earth and on earth as it is in heaven we trust you in our prayers even to do what is right and what is fit and he, he does this thing in verse 16 that he he only does it here in all of scripture and he, in all of scripture there's nowhere that tells us to confess our sins to one another except for right here and James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so, church, oftentimes we are not this. We come, we do this, right? We, those of you who are in a community group, you, you break, we oftentimes break into men and women for uh, more intentional prayer and to uh, confess our sins to one another. And you think, what's a sin that's like bad enough to where I can not look like I'm trying to cover up all of my sins, but not so bad to where they judged me uh, in here. I need to come up with one of those good middle ground sins for this time. 
scriptures tell us to confess, that it's safe, that we confess. I, I've oftentimes had uh, non-Christians join communion groups, and that will be the most powerful part. We had a non-Christian join our communion group several years ago, and uh, he, he didn't even want prayer. He was like, no, it's okay. You, you don't have to pray for me. I was like, ah, man, we're going to pray for you. You're at a church thing. We're going to pray for you. And he's like, okay. I was like, what can we pray for you? He's like, yeah, you know, my kids, they're, they're far from me. And uh, they're, they're, they're over here, and I, I feel like I might be, have wronged them. And so then we pray, and I get to him, and I'm praying. Totally not a Christian, like no exposure to church. I get to him, and we're praying. And I start praying for him and his kids. And I just hear the dude weeping over there. It is powerful. And without a church community, you miss out on that. And that's what James is telling us, is that we come together and we're a praying people. We're a praying people. A church is an authentic community. We're a praying community. I love the way that Jesus, before I move on, but I love the way that Jesus connects uh, confessing your sins with being healed from physical ailment. I don't know about you, but there's nothing that'll get me confessing my sins more quickly than like a stomach bug on the bathroom floor. I'm like, whatever it is, like I will never do it again. I will never sin again. Just like get me out of this bathroom, basically. There is a connection there. And, it, and it's a time, when we're sick, it's a time to evaluate, to say, is there anything in my heart that's run from the Lord? It's not saying that that's causing your sin, but it is a way for you to evaluate. Jesus says that it's not your sin that causes your ailments, but we want that spiritual healing along with the physical healing is, is what it, this is helping us with. So we're an authentic community. We're a praying community. And lastly, we're a pursuing community. We're committed to one another and the church. And this means that we pursue one another as we wander away from the body of Christ. Verse 19, he says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and brings him back, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. How many of us know someone who's wandered away from the church? Wandered away from the church and then wandered away from Christ with very little pursuit. It is our job as not pastors, but as, as pastors, yes, to pursue after lost sheep. But as all members, as anyone who calls this a church home, to be pursuing after one another as we wander away from Christ. If you haven't seen someone for several weeks, reach out to that person. Don't let them devalue church so much to where they start to devalue Jesus because those things oftentimes go hand in hand. Don't let them devalue Jesus. Reach out to one another. Pursue one another. And especially as you see someone wandering into sinful patterns, wandering into a way of the world and an influence of the world, that is going to lead them to destruction. We pursue after them. But how do we pursue after them? We pursue after them the way that God pursues after us, with gentleness, with kindness. We don't come and bring the, the, um, the righteousness sledgehammer on them. We pursue after them and say, we love you and we miss you and we care about you. Patiently, gently, the way that God cares about us. This is why we emphasize church membership at our church. We want to know who's committed and who isn't committed. 
It's just as simple as that. We want to know who's calling this their church home and who's not calling this their church home so that we know who we should be chasing after with a little bit more vigor when they don't show up for a little while or when they wander from the faith and they're posting drunk videos on Instagram. Who are we, who are we pursuing after there? Not that any of you have, okay? Sorry. I'm, everybody's like, oh, pastors surfing Instagram. Um, no, haven't seen them. We pursue after those who wander away from the faith, not to have a gotcha moment, but ideally to restore them to the faith. As I've said earlier, there's, this does not mean that there's never a time to leave a church. There are lots of churches that do not represent the bride of Christ very well. There are lots of churches that can be abusive, manipulative, uh, who make the, who put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, um, who do things uh, in an inappropriate way, and there's and it's always anytime you leave a church, it has to be with prayer, and you have to um, come to that decision. It's it's kind of weighty, but there are certainly times to leave a church when it doesn't represent Christ well, but. And that's saying that you're not signing a life contract when you join a church. We'd love to have you for life, but it's not, you're not signing a life contract. What you're doing is you're saying, I'm committed to these people. And if I wander away from the truth, I want them to come after me. I want them to pursue me. That's part of church membership is to say, I invite the pursuit of this church into my life. It should be really hard to walk away from your faith. We've made it far too easy. Far too easy. You do you. You do whatever is good for you. And we've made it easy for people to walk away from faith. So oftentimes, when people walk away from faith, they become like that hurt dog that's just biting everything and everyone that tries to help it. And some of us just have to put on our protective uh, shield of faith or whatever, our protective armor of God, and go and pursue the wounded, those who have been wounded by the church and loving lovingly, patiently bring them back. When we ignore those who wander, it is worse than anger. The author Rebecca Pippert puts it this way. She says, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. And the final form of hate is indifference. So how many people have walked away from their faith while their church faith, their church community has just sat back in indifference and let them do that? Friends, this church, I love this church. I love you all. I'm glad to be your pastor. I'm glad to be here. This church falls short of all of these things. If you're here looking for a perfect church, you haven't found it. We're, we're not perfect. Um, the old adage is if you find a perfect church, don't, don't join it because you'll just ruin it. Because all people are sinners and... It, if you found the perfect one, then, you know, you're a sinner, so don't, don't join it. We're not a perfect church. But we are a church where you can experience this kind of powerful community. And we have that vision for this kind of powerful community. And so I'm going to ask you to lean in. Don't allow this to just be something that you do part-time, that you partially do on the side. Lean in. Lean into a community group. Lean into relationships. Stay after, have a bagel. That's, those types of relationships and, and conversations are important. Be known and know others. 
lean in to the community. Let's pour in to this messy thing that we call the church. It is messy. And so the question, the, the application for you this morning is, do you let other people into your life? Are you vulnerable? The church should be the most authentic community in the world. Are you vulnerable enough to say that your church is authentic? You might say, ah, that church is just fake. But are you the chief fake among us? Do you let other people into your life? Do you welcome people to speak truth? Do you invite them saying, please speak truth into my life? What do you see in my life? How can I love Jesus more? Where is Jesus moving and I don't see him moving? Because he's always moving. Do you view the church differently than Jesus? Who loved the church so much that he was willing to give up his own life for her, to redeem her, to buy her back. Each week we, we take a moment to practice the communion meal. And this week as we practice communion, we need to evaluate ourselves. Uh, communion, I, this was, I don't know if this was handled perfectly because there was like some hurt in this also, but it, it was also a powerful moment. One time when I was practicing communion in a church not in Boston, um, when I was in grad school, uh, I had a friend who said, hey, I need to talk to you. And he basically confessed bitterness towards me, not for anything that I necessarily had done. And I don't know if he handled it perfectly, but at the same time, it's kind of beautiful because he said, I evaluated my heart and I did not feel right to take communion without seeking reconciliation with you this morning. Maybe you're this, here this morning you're saying, and you need to evaluate your heart and say, where do I need to be set right before God? Where do I need to repent? Where do I need to be reconciled with someone else? Who have I done worse than hate and just thought indifferently? It's so much easier to ignore our problems. It's like those, those text messages where it's like, I don't want to open that one. You know, It's easier if I just don't read that one. What problems are we ignoring? And how can we step into those things with health? Uh, communion is always an invitation to evaluate your life. Church, let's stand. Let's pray and seek the Lord as we respond in song and communion. Father, we pray that as we read this huge vision for what it means to be the church, that you will bind us together and help us to more accurately represent what it means to be married to Christ, what it means to be led by Christ, what it means to be the body of Christ, that you will help us to love the church because we love the things that you love, that you will lead us and guide us, that you will protect us. And God, we pray that as we go after those who are wandering, even in our own congregation, those who we haven't seen in a little while, whose faith is fragile, that you give us gentleness, compassion, but persistence and patience. And Father, we pray that we'll see people return to um, return to you so that they might uh, be reconciled. God, we pray for anyone who's far from you this morning, who feels like you're a million miles away, and we pray that they will return to you even where they are sitting, that they'll be reminded of your love and your grace. We ask these things in Christ's name.